0: All right, the first phrase I want you to look at in the verses that we just read today are found in verse one. He says, beloved, I urge you. Beloved, I urge you. When Peter says this, this is a moment of a turning point in the letter. Some of you guys might have remembered that in a previous study I mentioned to you that the book of 1 Peter is one of the most highly exhortational books in all of the New Testament. In other words, Peter over and over again tells us how to live the Christian life. He exhorts us over and over and over again. But over the last 10 weeks, Peter actually hasn't given us yet very many exhortations. Uh, Instead, what Peter has focused on is who we are as God's people. He's told us that we are saved if we believed in Jesus, that we're being saved if we believe in Jesus, that one day we will be saved if we believe in Jesus when he returns. He's told us that we're the possessors of the greatest message in human history, the one that the prophets spoke about in the ages of old and that even today angels long to look into. He's told us as well that we're to be a people that are marked by hope, that we're hoping in the return of Christ and that we're pursuing a life of holiness and that we're operating in the fear of the Lord and that we're to love one another. He's also told us that we're to be marked by being people who are thirsting after getting everything we can from the Lord, the pure spiritual milk that God gives to us and that we are those who have received The Lord, even though He's been a stumbling block to the nations, He's the chief cornerstone upon whom we have built our lives. And last week, Peter said some astounding things about us. He took phrases straight from the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, and applied them to the modern church. He said, You're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're God's own precious possession that you might declare the excellencies of God. And he said, you're a people who used to be without mercy, but now you have mercy. You used to not be a people, but now you have the possession and the position of being in Christ. You are God's people today. So Peter has been telling us who we are. But now with this phrase, when he says, beloved, I urge you, he's shifting his letter, and now he's going to begin bossing us around. He's going to start telling us how to live. Now, I don't want you to mistake what Peter is doing. He is not trying to manipulate you or manipulate me. He is not trying to say, well, before I tell you a bunch of things that you need to do, I want to butter you up a little bit. I'm going to tell you nice things about your salvation, nice things about Jesus, nice things about your identity so that after you're willing to hear from me, I can tell you what to do. No, that's not how Peter feels at all. What Peter thinks is that if, if this is who we are, then there are ways of life that, are, that they make sense based on who we are. And so Peter is going to exhort us based on our position, based on our identity, because this is the life that makes sense if who Peter says we are is actually who we are. Now today in these two verses, Peter's gonna give us three strategies for how to live life. He's gonna tell us, number one, that we need to think of ourselves as exiles and sojourners. He's gonna tell us, number two, that we need to abstain from fleshly passions that war against our souls. And he's going to tell us, number three, that we must keep our conduct honorable when living life in front of the unbelieving world. Now, I could just start off here, and I could start telling you about each of those three things. But before we think about that, I want to think about why. Why should we live this way? Why should we adopt the exhortation that Peter's going to give today, which, by the way, is just a general exhortation And in later weeks, he's going to get very specific about how to apply this exhortation. So he's telling us to live a certain lifestyle today in general terms, but later he's gonna tell you how to do home. He's gonna tell you how to do work. He's gonna tell you how to, to respond to the governing authorities. He'll get specific later. So in thinking about this, the question is why? Why would I want to live this way? Why would I want to come under the exhortations that Peter is going to give? Well, for that, we need to look at the last phrase of verse 12 that we read today. If you look down in your Bibles together with me again, Peter said that if we live this way, then when they speak against us as evildoers, they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, what I want you to capture today, what I want you to understand is that Peter's goal for whatever life he's told us to live in this letter is that, as many people as possible on the day of visitation, that's the day Jesus returns, that as many people as possible would be happy about Jesus' return. So in other words, Peter's goal is that as many people would come to Christ as possible. Do you care about this? Do you want this? Don't you want as many people as possible to know the Lord? We got one guy. So, Brenton, I'm stoked that you want to know and see as many people as possible come to the Lord. The rest of us are coming around. <laughs> Hopefully, by the end of this sermon, we'll all want it. Okay, hey, this is our goal. Now, I joke, but the reality is, this is what every Christian wants, right? I mean, you're not going to meet a believer who says, you know, I'm really not into that. I don't want people to know Jesus. In fact, I would like as few people as possible to know the Lord. And I'm trying to live my life in a certain way to where I just offend as many people as possible so that through my life as few people as possible will come to know the Lord. No, that's not the way any of us feel. But the reality is this evangelistic purpose often becomes clouded in our mind's eye. A lot of times in churches we get distracted with so many different things or We begin to turn inwardly upon our own lives. And we forget the mission that the Lord has called us into. Pretty soon evangelism becomes a program on the side of the church rather than the simple and everyday mission of the church. But what Peter is saying is that this is who we are. That's why we're meant to live the way that we do, so that more people can know Jesus. In other words, Peter envisioned us, he saw us like he saw the people of Israel in the Old Testament. A small group, often threatened, often marginalized, but living lives in a way that were intended to show the nations who God is. Now in the modern church, we often think of attracting people to Christ as something that happens at our events, or our church services, or our special forms of ministry. And when churches adopt this kind of view, everything in the church has to always get better. You know, the preaching has to always get better. The music has to always get better. The graphics have to always get better. The atmosphere has to always get better. The parking team has to always get better. Now, I'm down, for doing things with excellence as worship unto the Lord to a point. But the thing that Peter is saying is that he's not thinking in his mind about attractional churches, attractional church services or programs or activities. No, Peter is calling us to attractional lives, that we would be individuals and communities that are attractive to the world that we live in. This is not a strategy that Peter made up on his own. He lifted it straight from Jesus' own words. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 16, and tell me if it sounds anything like what Peter said in verse 12. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Live in such a way So that people will see your life and ultimately give glory to your father in heaven. Because it was through the doorway of your life that the gospel question was answered. Now of course we understand, or we should understand, that eventually the gospel message must be spoken. You can't only live it, you must speak it. It is a message, so it has to be articulated. Words must be used. Last week we saw Peter say that we're meant to declare the excellencies of God. Later in his letter, Peter will tell us that we have to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that's inside of us. But what Peter is saying is that we shouldn't rush to speak the message without understanding that our lives also communicate the message. Our little church community that we have right here our small groups, our gospel friendships, they're all meant to radiate God's goodness. So we should want to live in a certain way, whatever way Peter describes, which we'll look at in a moment, we should want to live this way so that God's goal can be accomplished as many people as possible in the kingdom. So in other words, it's worth asking the question, how would I live if I wanted people to come to Christ? And like I said, Peter's going to answer with a few strategies. He's going to tell us a mindset to adopt, something not to do, and something to do. But my prayer is that we would learn, not just today, but throughout all of 1 Peter, about each one of these elements. Because like Peter, I want to see as many people as possible come to know Jesus. You know, I'll just tell you a little bit about me. I'm not an evangelist. That's not my natural gifting or spiritual gifting that God has given to me and when I was 17 and 18 years old I was running away from God and God grabbed a hold of my life in a dramatic way and fashion and overnight I began walking with the Lord I submitted and surrendered to him and a few months into my newfound life in Christ one night I was studying the Bible and I heard the voice of the Lord unlike any moment I'd ever heard the Lord before and any moment after And what I sensed from the Lord was, Nate, I've not called you to these other things. I've called you to teach my word. And so at 18 years old, I felt that the God of heaven was giving me his marching orders for my life. I'm 43 years old now, and I've not deviated from that mission. I believe that God wants me to communicate his word. So I'm primarily a teacher, a pastor teacher. But Paul told a pastor teacher in Timothy, in 1 Timothy, that he needed to do the work of an evangelist. You know, I want to see people saved. I I like to feel that I have an evangelist heart, even if that's not my natural gifting or effectiveness or ability. But I want to see people come to know the Lord. But here's what I know about this community. It's not going to be through group meetings that most people will hear about the Lord because only a small percentage of the community we're living in will ever be willing to come to a Sunday gathering of God's people. But a much larger percentage of people in our community, they might not come to a church building, they might not come to a church meeting, but they will know a church person. And that means that the church has gone to them, because the church is God's people. We might not be able to bring many people here, but we can go there. We can go to the world that we're living in. Our lives can go out into this community. So how can this be done? Well, let me show you three ways from this text. Number one, you have to adopt an exile mentality. You have to adopt an exile mentality. Look at the first phrase of verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You just can't receive the book of first Peter. If you can't adopt the understanding that when it comes to your relationship with society and culture, you are a sojourner and exile. If you if you can't think that way, then the book of First Peter is basically going to be a book about trials and that's kind of it. It's not going to be a strategy for how to live your Christianity effectively when Christianity is a small percentage on the margins of society. Now what's a sojourner? A a sojourner is kind of a camper. They, they, They have tents, they're not home, and they don't have a home, they're borrowing home. Exiles, though, they are far from home. They have a home, but they're far from it. This is Peter's way of still connecting us to the Old Testament saints. Abraham was the original sojourner and exile, and we are like him. We're sojourners, aliens, temporary residents, visiting strangers, foreigners who are far from home during our time here on earth. Now how does that help us live out this life before the unbelieving world? Well, one of the things that thinking of yourself as an exile or a sojourner does is it helps you understand that as a Christian, you are living in a place that has different values and practices than you have. This has been one of the things that's been fascinating to watch over the last year plus inside the body of Christ in the United States, particularly. Because so many churches have responded in such a way to the COVID crisis as if to communicate, we want you, the world, to behave, operate, believe as if you are Christians when you're not Christians. (laughs) And that always just confuses me because there have been times in my life where I have not walked with the Lord. And you know what I didn't wanna do during that time? I didn't want to obey God. (laughs) I didn't wanna act like I was a Christian during times where I was running from the Lord. So, the reality is, the unbelieving world isn't going to adopt a biblical view of humanity. So, we should expect that our views, our practices, they will be different from the host society. I think it also means that we will work hard to build a good reputation for God's people. You know, if you go to uh, another country, you know, people have all these ideas about what Americans are like, you know, another parts of the world, you know, and then when they hear you're from California, you know, it's like, all the thoughts and images that people have, you know, about California, you know, and then they'll hear, like, oh, you live near the beach in California? And so there's like this whole idea, this connotation of what comes along with it. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, people go to the beach where I live all the time. We wear these things that are, they're like moon boots with fur on the inside. They're called Uggs and jeans and big jackets. That's how we go to the beach on the Monterey Peninsula, you know, kind of thing. But When you're traveling in a distant land, you want to be a good representative of your home country. If you're a foreigner, you want people to think highly of your people group, of your home nation, of your customs. You don't want to blow it. You don't want people to look down upon your people because of the way that you've behaved. And I think believers need to adopt this visitor mindset in the world today. You know, there's a lot about the Bible that is just offensive because it confronts the common ways of the world. There's a lot about the gospel that is exclusive and offensive. It it confronts sin and brokenness in humanity. It's the best message ever, but it's so hard for so many. But we don't need to go beyond the Bible and beyond the gospel to be more offensive than we need to be. We don't have to unnecessarily offend the host culture. Third, I think it means that as Christians, we will always long for home. You know, as home as we get here on earth, and we are supposed to be a blessing to our culture, society, our cities, and as much as God might bless us in that endeavor, we're still called to another home in the future, and we're waiting for that kingdom. There will be always a little piece of your heart that is looking forward to that time. So we have to adopt an exile mentality. But the second thing that Peter says, the second of three strategies he gives to us to live this kind of life is that we have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Look at verse 11 with me, the second part of it. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, this might be shocking to some of you today as you read it. Maybe you thought of Christianity as something that was a peace-giving, restful kind of experience, and in so many ways it is. But what Peter is saying here is that we are also at war. There's a battle that exists inside of us. The war is internal, and the language that Peter used hints at the reality that it's strategic and it's ongoing. It's always there. There's never gonna be a point in your Christian life where you can say, you know what? The passions of the flesh, they're just gone. And I have no temptations whatsoever. No, we, every person here is a bucket of soul and spirit and flesh. And there are passions of the flesh that will be pulling against us. Now, some of those passions of the flesh, they come from natural desires that God has given that we then want to go beyond the boundaries that God has designed for human flourishing into places of unhealth. So we want to disobey God, and it's hurtful to our souls. But then there are also desires that we'll have that God never designed, but they're there because our bodies, our spirits, our minds, our souls have been broken by the fall, broken by sin. And so we look into the word and we find out how to live life and we subject our desires to the word of God. Now this is important because what Peter is saying is, look, this is going to be a battle in the Christian life. You know, a lot of times we think about soul care as things like you know, reading a good book, or going on a long hike, or taking a warm bath. But Peter says that soul care is like a war, that there's a fight that we are in to take care of these souls. And make no mistake, Peter is not saying, like so many pulpits communicate, that, hey, there's a way to live life And the reason that you should live life this way is just because, well, God said it and it's just kind of the way you should do things and it's the way that church people live. No, Peter is basically saying, you gotta live this way. You gotta keep your soul healthy. You've got to keep the passions of your body in check because literally, quite literally, human lives depend on it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if we don't live like this, then how will they declare the glories of God when Jesus returns? So there's a way or a manner of life that sets our witness up in a good way for the world around us. Think about an elite warrior. You know, they have to maintain a certain level, even when they're not in battle, of physical fitness and preparation. There's perishable skills that will just go away if they're not used over time. So they've got to stay in shape, stay sharp, stay ready so that when battle calls, they're effective in the battle. The same can be said for our souls. They must be maintained. And if we let ourselves get overrun by bodily passions, we will lose the fight, we will lose our witness, we won't be effective to the world around us. I was talking to a friend of mine recently, who shared with Christina and me that, you know, for her, she just came to a realization that she could not handle uh, social media. And I know I was like really challenging you guys with social media a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to try to do that again today, you know. But it was just for her in her life. She said, I can't have it in my life because it produces all these things in me that are unhealthy that, that just aren't good in my life. And I'm I'm sure you've had some lighter experiences like that. Maybe you hopped online and you saw someone post a picture of something that you didn't even know you needed. But then after you saw it, you're like, oh man, I need one of those, you know, and covetous began to be stirred up inside of you. Or maybe an image that stirred up lustful tendencies inside of you, but all kinds of different things. And so she just said, I I know what I gotta do. I gotta go to war with this thing. It cannot be part of my life. Well, what about you? As you search your own life in your own heart, you have to ask the question, how do the passions of the flesh bombard my soul? What spaces, whether they're digital or physical, do you feel the strongest forms of temptation? Here's a good question to ask. What hours of the day are you at your weakest? When do you find yourself succumbing to temptation? These are the questions that we should ask to help us form the attractional community that we're meant to be in Christ because it's attractive to find people that know they're messed up, know they need the help of the Lord, know they need the help of each other and are trying together to honor the Lord with their lives. Now up to this point, I haven't really talked about the main way that Peter says we must combat the passions of the flesh that are warring against our soul. It's a word that scares a lot of people in our modern time. Look at it there in verse 11. He said, abstain. Abstain from the passions of the flesh that war against your soul. You see, brothers and sisters, sometimes the Christian life requires a form of self-denial. Jesus said that if anyone would come after him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. Now the reason why this counsel is really good, the counsel to just abstain, is that the truth of the matter is that when a passion of the flesh stirs up inside of you, you'll never be satisfied with just a little bit of that experience. You can't just enter into it and say, you know, one moment of this passion will satisfy my need for this passion and I'll be content after that. No, it's like feeding a fire. It's putting fuel on a fire. The desire will grow and grow and grow. You know, I'm one of these people that, almost every year I get poison oak at some point. You know, I run on the trails sometimes or hiking or whatever. And I just, I get it super easily. I'm, it's like if I look at it the wrong way, I get poison oak. So I, I have this whole like philosophy when I go out into the forest. To me, everything that grows is poison oak. That's just the way I treat everything. So I, it's like a, this little oak tree right here, that's poison oak just don't touch it. That's kind of my philosophy. But when I get it, the reality is, man, I want to scratch that itch so badly. And inevitably, when that happens, what occurs? Well, the poison oak spreads. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. That's the reality of the passions of the flesh. This is why Peter is telling us that we've got to abstain from the passions of our flesh. Jesus told us that there are times where we have to be radical when it comes to the bodily desires that plague us. He told us in Matthew chapter five that when our eye or hand or foot causes us to sin, we've got to pluck it out or chop it off. Now, this was hyperbole that Jesus was speaking with, but what he's saying is there are times you've got to be radical in dealing with sin. Sometimes the boyfriend or the girlfriend has got to go and be completely cut off. Sometimes the app store has to be totally disabled on your device. Sometimes your internet connection, you can't handle it. You can't have it. Sometimes you've got to attend a real live support group with other people and tell them, this is a struggle of mine in my life. Sometimes you've got to pick up the phone at two in the morning and call a fellow believer and let them know that you're about to do something really stupid or you just have and you need their help so that you don't make it Even worse, sometimes you'll be in a conversation where covetousness or jealousy or anger or gossip is coming up and you gotta walk away. You can't reform that conversation, you must leave. Sometimes you have to sit in front of somebody that you love and you have to break their heart by telling them the truth because you know that if you don't confess your sins, you're actually gonna hurt them worse in the long run. But brothers and sisters, this is war. And sometimes war requires drastic measures. And the drastic measure that Peter proposes is that we would abstain from fleshly lusts that war against our souls. Now, before looking at our last little strategy that Peter gives to us, I just want to tell you that if you do abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against your soul, I just want to let you guys know, like, you're going to be all right. <laughs> you see, sometimes people think to themselves, like, if I don't experience and live out these desires that are growing inside of me, if I don't give in to them, then I, I just feel like they're going to grow and grow and grow, and I'm just going to, like, burst at some point, and I'll destroy my life. I've got to partake of these, don't I? Well, Peter says no. And for this, I would give you the life of Daniel. Daniel. You see, Daniel was a young man who loved God, wanted to live his life in accordance with God's word, but he was carried away into Babylonian captivity where they lived life very differently, disobedient to God's word. And Daniel told his captors, I can't live like you guys live. And they argued back and forth for a while until finally Daniel said, well, just test me for 10 days. See what happens if I don't live like you guys live. And 10 days later, they came back And it says in Daniel 1 verse 15 that Daniel and his friends who joined him were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than everyone else. Now, that's a tough one for us in California because we don't understand what that means. But in Bible times, to be fatter in the flesh, that was good. That was a great thing. And that's what Daniel was. He was healthy, in other words, because God had been blessing his life as he obeyed the Lord. Daniel was fine. Abstaining. In fact, he was more than fine. His life thrived as he obeyed the Lord. And if you resist the passions of the flesh in favor of the health of your soul, you will thrive also. And by the way, this is what Peter's thinking about with this strategy. Because it's not like if you tell someone who doesn't believe in the Lord that you're gonna hold fast to a biblical sexual ethic and obey what the scripture says about sex and sexuality, it's not like you're going to hear a lot of like, wow, that's really great, that's interesting, tell me more about that, that's incredible that you're living that way. In fact, the common idea is that that's an unhealthy and in fact unwise way to live you know take a young couple that said you know we 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 got engaged we're getting married but we're not going to enjoy each other sexually until we've made those vows and that covenant together and what will the wisdom of the world say the wisdom of the world will say that's foolish you need to enjoy each other to try to figure out whether you have compatibility in the bedroom but the reality that peter is pointing out is that if you live this way you'll flourish and the point that I'm trying to make is that there's a lot of pain in our world. There's a lot of people who have listened to the cultural ideas of the way life should be lived, and we live in a generation that's experiencing so much sexual hurt and shame and brokenness and regret and confusion, and we have an opportunity to just show people, well, hey, I, I feel great. I'm flourishing. I'm doing well and it provides a witness for the world that we live in. By the way, I just wanted to make sure that I said in all three services today that if you're listening to these words, passions of the flesh, and words like abstain, and your mind is going into that sexual arena and you're thinking about your own life, if today you're feeling a measure of guilt or shame for something you've done or something you're doing, And the enemy of your soul is whispering into your ear today and saying, well, you know, it's too late for you. You didn't do the thing that Peter is telling you to do. You didn't live this kind of way. You need to understand today that you are in great company here in this church. You know, so many of us have many things in our lives, in our past and in our present that we regret doing, that we're embarrassed that we have done, yet God has been gracious and faithful and merciful to us in our failures. And what we have the opportunity to do is to move forward from this day and say, from this day on, I'm going to abstain from the passions of the flesh that war against my soul. There is grace, in other words, for you. But let's close with the final thing that Peter tells us. He tells us number three, not only should we have an exile mentality, not only should we abstain from fleshly lusts, but number three, we need to conduct ourselves with honor. That comes from verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now when Peter says this, he's not thinking about any nationality Uh, what he's doing is taking the terminology from the Old Testament, people of Israel, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentile world. Now the church does the same thing. We're meant to be an illuminating presence to the nations uh, because we have the message of the gospel. And this is a New Testament theme. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we should aspire to, to live in a certain way and walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, he said we should give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Colossians four five, he said we should walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And to pastors, Paul said that they must be well thought of by outsiders so that they might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This, brothers and sisters, is Peter's strategy for when we experience hostility from the world. He doesn't tell us we should be hostile in return, but that we should live a life that's filled with good works. This is not Peter inventing this strategy. This is something that he adopted from Jesus. I told you last week that Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of of wolves. When people treat you like a wolf treats a sheep, how do you respond? Do you respond by being a wolf in return? Or do you respond as you're supposed to be as a believer, another sheep? This is a vulnerable position. You know, if you think about it, a sheep, you know, I'm, I'm sure sheep live great lives, you know, but the reality is they just seem like an animal that is for everybody else, You know, they grow their hair out, and then at the end, we come along and we're like, hey, we'll take that. That's for us. We would like your hair. And all throughout the Bible, sheep or lambs, they're presented as sacrifices. They're a meal. They lay down their lives so that other people can be sustained and have life. And, of course, Jesus is the ultimate. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the ultimate sheep, the ultimate lamb. So there will be times, brothers and sisters, where your life, if you're a Christian, is spent for others. Your life is to be laid down for others. And one way to do this is by designing your life around engaging in good works. That's what Peter is saying here. I like this because, you know, people have great questions about Christianity today, great questions about the faith, about creation, about the scripture, about the gospel, And I'm thankful because so many people have given great answers to these questions. But if we as a church have to sit around and wait until we all feel like we have all the answers before we tell anybody about Jesus, we'll never get around to telling anybody about Jesus because there's always something more to learn. But we can all devote ourselves to a life of good works. We can all strategically, purposefully, intentionally share Jesus by living lives that are honorable and filled with good. And the early Christians, they were known for this. You know, people spread rumors about the early Christians. They called them cannibals because they knew that central to the church worship service was the eating of communion. And so they said, you know, they're eating the body and the blood. They're, they're a strange cult that's eating flesh. These are the rumors that were spread around the church. But after a while, nobody could deny the kind of lives that the early Christians lived. Because in the Roman Empire, women were abused and considered property, children were considered property and often killed even after their birth if they were unwanted or they were abandoned and impoverished. People on the margins of society, they were often treated in brutal ways. And the church came along and they brought the women in and gave them positions of honor and esteem in the body of Christ. Then secondly, they went out and took the abandoned babies, many of whom were baby girls, took them into their homes and families, and they provided a space for those on the margins of society to be able to live and to be. And people over time could not deny the kinds of lives that the early Christians were living. And make no mistake, Peter is not saying to us, I want you to live a life that is so awesome that eventually... You earn the privilege of being able to invite someone to your church to hear your pastor share the good news of the gospel. That might be something that God does in your life, but Peter isn't saying that you need to earn the right to invite someone to an evangelistic event. He's saying your life is an evangelistic event. We've got to let that sink into our lives. The manner of life that we live is a message to the world that we're living within. So let me close by just saying two things in a way of practical counsel about how to live this out. Number one, uh, don't make this too programmatic. You see, I, I don't know if it's like a Western thing or an American thing, or a church thing, I don't know what it is, but a lot of times we read verses like this about living lives of good works before the world that we live in, And a lot of times our first move is to create like a day of service, a sign-up sheet, matching t-shirts, and a social media hashtag where we go out and we like do good stuff together in the name of Jesus. And that's fine. We can do all that. There's nothing wrong with it if it's the overflow of what our lives are like anyways. All right? So we should be personally thinking about not the program, but how can I? You know, volunteer a little bit? How can I be a blessing to my community? And then second, I also wanted to say, don't make this too big of a deal. Don't make this too grand in your life right away. Sometimes we read verses like these and we think to ourselves, yeah, there's a lot of impoverished, marginalized kids on the Monterey Peninsula. There's tons of homeless kids on the Monterey Peninsula. And it'd be easy for us to think to ourselves by reading a verse like this, I need to personally figure out how to solve that issue, that problem on the Monterey Peninsula myself. Now, God might use you to figure out that problem, but so often we make it too grand that we don't even do the small things that need to be done. And if there's one person in your life that God has put in your life for you to reach out to intentionally, then you need to do it. And to them, it won't matter that you haven't met the 10,000 person need You've met the one-person need. So don't make it too big, and don't make it programmatic, but make sure you understand your life is an evangelistic message. So have an exile mentality, and abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul.